0: Alright, hi everybody, my name's Sean, and you're listening to Incredible Discourse. It's the podcast where we talk about the past, we explore uh, exploring the past, and uh, we spent a little too much time in Japan. Um, I know the last week, I think I missed an episode, maybe I might have missed two. Uh, I'm trying to not miss, yeah, I guess this week would be the second week I missed it. Not good, can't be doing that. But, um, you know... Uh, I've got a busy schedule, so I've been trying to sit down and get these, you know, and do these whenever whenever I have time. So um, today we're going to be talking about archaeology, we're going to do some economics, some history, some Japan, and money. Um, today money is really going to be at the heart of the topic, and it's going to be dealing with the types of money that have been used and that have enabled the division of labor in the Japanese islands throughout time. Now... Uh, There's a lot to explore, but uh, it should be fun. And we're going to start off with why economics is so seldomly touched in the realm of archaeology a little bit, and then why, like, what money is, and essentially go through like a a a fun, quick monetary survey of the Japanese archipelago. And primarily, it's going to be the like central Japan in the Yamato court territory just because it's well documented and it tends to be the um, the core narrative for how monetary systems developed in the islands alright so money money is an important aspect of you know a market economy and it plays a vital role in the lives of all people now well if all people who live in market economies right if you don't live in a market economy money's not that useful to you but ideally If you live in some sort of free-ish market economy, money tends to play an important role in your life. But um, when we look into the past and try to understand the role that money plays and how various goods were used as money, we're forced to ask the question that may have otherwise slipped past our assumptions based on modern conditions. So, why does archaeology as a field tend to shy away from economics? And now, although for the most part they don't overtly do, like they don't overtly address economics, they haven't really shied away from economic assumptions that are kind of baked into interpretations and the field. The only area of economics that have really been avoided have been the Austrian school and free market capitalism, for the most part. Now, this includes, but is not limited to, uh, praxeology and catalactics. Now, The areas of economics that have been favored are the ones that can help justify and credit centralized control over economies and populations. So the economic systems that tend to be favored by archaeologists are ones that favor their industry. And that is centralized control over, you know, um, either archaeological or heritage, uh, tangible and intangible Um, cultural heritage. Yes. (laughs) Now, this is because archaeology is very closely tied with the state. Now, as a profession, archaeology and heritage both developed in and around the 19th century, and they're a product of of European nationalism, essentially. Um, And they're kind of created as a, a type of propaganda. Now, the funding for Preserving the Past has allowed the various states and governments to become synonymous with the nations and countries that they rule over. Now this is why the idea of modern nations are perpetuated backwards in time, because the people who explore the past are funded directly from the state. And then in turn, the people who explore the past, who are funded by the state, surprisingly enough, use the past and use history as a, a source of uh, legitimizing state authority because that's who pays them. That's who, that's who writes the check. And now it's not always a direct check, but a lot of times it is. And when it's not, it's almost entirely an indirect check. Now, when we look at the way that the archeological record has been established throughout the 19th and 20th century, the bulk of the material comes from private collections that have either been bought from these private individuals by the state or have been donated to the state by estates essentially. So in addition to this, the states throughout the Americas, Europe, and Asia claim ownership and protector of rights over the past. Now this is problematic for reasons that should be clear, but I'll I'll highlight them real quick. One is that archaeology is used for state propaganda. Two is that archaeology and heritage are used to bribe academia and the public into further support of the existence of a state. Now, what is often grossly overlooked is that the majority of the greatest archaeological and heritage collections that exist today have been collected and curated by private collectors before being handed over to the state. We can also go down the shadiness of these collections being donated or sold to the state, to great museums, but that's... Um, That's another rant. It's for a different time, different day. But this essentially is going to lead to the fact that archaeology and heritage are in an economic bubble. Now, the state has directly and indirectly artificially inflated the archaeological market through overinvestment, and this has led the archaeological and heritage sectors to completely become dependent on government support. Through Taxes, donations, and other acts of charity. As a um, as an industry, archaeology and heritage cannot exist without these government privileges. Now, which should not be a concern only to the people who are in these fields, because it should. But we can see how this problem has worked out in the uh, for the Sheffield University, because they got shut down recently because the department was completely def- dependent on uh, on charity work, the school decided they're not making enough money, it's not worth their investment, and the university shut them down. A lot of people were upset about it, because a lot of people don't get how basic economics work. If you don't produce something that people want to consume, you're not helping anyone, you're generally wasting resources. And I'm not saying that archaeological research is a waste of time, but if no one wants to pay for it, consensually, you're not making, you're not really producing anything that people want to consume. What you're doing is you're creating a net loss. You're essentially consuming the resources that are being put into your department. You're not utilizing them and using them to create, right, to create useful products. And it's not me making the value judgment here. It's the public making the value judgment by not funding you. Because if you're not, if you have nothing to sell them, if, you've, if you're not providing them a service, if you're not you know, servicing the public at large, the public and people, the market will punish you for that. They will not fund you. You will have no money. You have no way of, of continuing your work because your work doesn't uh, doesn't benefit them. And then they, they'll, you know, they vote with their dollars and their dollars aren't going to you. So you lose that election. It's It's a harsh reality, but it's true. But anyway, in addition to that, all the people who are so compelled to fund projects through taxation and also through the increase in prices of goods and services due to archaeological compliance laws. So it doesn't just affect people in archaeology. It doesn't just affect taxpayers whose tax money goes to funding um, public archaeological works. It also hits the general public in the fact that in a lot of in most countries, archaeological work is a requirement by law before construction can be done. So whoever is running that construction company has to add in that additional cost that they do not want to pay for because the relationship between construction companies and archeological firms is antagonistic because the archeological firm needs to be hired on pain of fines and punishment from the state. So the state comes in and says, hey, you have to hire these people. Don't care or you will be fined and that doesn't create a really nice work environment and the relationship between the company who's providing a service, the archeology span company, and the construction company who wants to just build a building but now has to go out of their way to hire these archeologists. Not really the best situation set up, but it is required by law and that increased the price of construction, which then increased the price of these, it increased the overall investment needed which raises prices on down the line as a production to consumers. So in, you know, whether it's, whether it's whatever those buildings that they're trying to do produce, or whether it's those being houses or roads, the, the added cost of archeological work is something that is both directly paid for by the public and indirectly paid for by consumers. Now, overall, The complete dependency on the state for archaeology and heritage is strongly related to the rise of popularity in socialism and Marxism in Europe and North America. In the US, we see it as the beginning of National Parks and the National Monuments Act, along with the New Deal, and um, in Europe we see it as a trend steadily continued upwards and towards uh, greater and greater government involvement in every aspect of individual lives, and if you look today in Europe, we have a little bit more with, um, I guess, even the U.S., lockdowns, right? Government intruding on your life. So in conclusion to part one of this uh, of this episode, it's uh, a little archaeological, you know, a little bit meta. I guess we're talking about the archaeology industry. Um, archaeology and archaeologists tend to not have a strong understanding of economics because the work and culture, work culture and education that they receive has led to this idea that profit and profit incentives are tainted and should not be considered when dealing with the search for knowledge. Now, a lot of that comes from the fact that if they have to take profit into consideration, it completely contradicts their current models for funding because their funding comes from the state. How can I convince a bureaucrat or a government official to just write me a check? What do I have to do to convince them? And that's essentially how they, they're not selling anything to the public for the most part, they're selling it to government officials who are going to take tax money and give it to them. Or what they're going to do is they're going to advocate for, I don't know, stricter compliance laws with, uh, surveying that needs to be done before construction happens. So then to set another, you know, once again they're using the power of law or the state to require other people to pay them. So they're either getting it directly from the state or indirectly by the state making others pay them. Now the problem with this, other than the fact that the archaeology community um, tends to not understand how economics works or what an economy is because their financial and economic worldview is centered around acquiring taxpayer money, you know, state funding. Um, There's issues when they use that model to interpret the past. So, in the same way that archaeologists have acknowledged today that Soviet and Marxist archaeology is no longer a viable way of interpreting the archaeological record, the interpretations tend to avoid really applying the impact that economic pressures play on human action. Okay, so I'm done with that for now. I know that I tend to rant a little bit, especially when it comes to um, economics in the state. But, um, man, I just I have very strong feelings about it. And now I've shared them with you. But we're moving on now. We're putting that to the side, and we're, we're taking it with us, but we're going to put it down for a minute. And we're going to go to the Japanese archipelago. We're going to explore the past a little bit. We're gonna see what's going on with their money. Because money's important, money is the uh you know, that's the root of all evil. <laughs> which is which is probably not true. It's uh it's probably the root of um what's the word I'm looking for? Human prosperity. That's there we go, that's a word. Okay, so now that I've criticized archaeologists overall for not understanding economics. I'm now going to talk about how econo- economists don't understand economics, and we're going to talk about money for a bit. And the models that uh, Keynesians and uh, modern monetary theorists uh, propose, complicated, like needlessly like, obtuse. Simple economics, money, let's, talk, let's do it. So now the problem in most economic analysis of the past is that they rely on unsound economic theories and models. Understanding the role and nature of money in a market economy is vital to understanding how they develop and how government action affects them, them being market economies. Now the forces that dictate the form in which money takes are market pressures and consumer demands. When governments step into free markets and manipulate the form and function of money and exchange, there is a distortion and a manipulation taking place. Now, these ripple into larger malinvestments and malemployment of the factors of production. Today, we're going to be exploring some of the monies that have been used throughout the uh, lifespan of the Showan Estates. Showan Estates? Sean, you're throwing like crazy words at us. Well, I did an episode where we kind of go through the history of Showan Estates. For the most part, Showan Estates are the form of of land organization from the Yamato Court. And the central Japanese islands throughout, basically the majority of its history, from like the eighth century all the way up to the sixteenth, uh, yeah, sixteenth century, maybe seventeenth century, but um, for a good almost a thousand years, it's a it's a um, a form of land incorporation to uh, you know organize production. Some of them were state, some of them were private, all of them were taxed some of them were related to buddhists uh and you know when you when you think about the shohan like the estate system in general right the shohan estate system it's a little long the estate system in japan we can really see the long long religious cultural political and economic impact that buddhism has had throughout the japanese islands you know for a long time at least when i was in university i was interested in like religion that's what i studied uh anthropology and religious studies and i was always interested in shinto and i imagine oh shinto the native religion of japan but in reality buddhism has had a much stronger impact and has been much more consistent throughout the history of the japanese islands so i mean not many people would argue this but i would argue that buddhism is probably more fundamentally japanese at least the japanese forms of buddhism than than shinto is at least it's it's been more core and vital to the development of of Japanese culture today Um, and it's been much more influential on the culture that has become modern Japan than Shinto almost ever has you know but um, partially it's because it's been able to fund itself it's been able to take advantage of market economies and be able to fund themselves right one of the reasons that Buddhism is so prominent throughout the Japanese islands is because it figure out how to uh, pay for itself but anyway what we're talking about today is the four different uh, different phases of money throughout the show and estates basically most the majority of Japanese history We're starting off in the seventh century to 10th century and they started like the Yamato court starts producing bronze coins it says hey guys I got all this cool these cool coins can we can we use this as money huh anyone can, you wanna you want to use it as, as money? It's, it's real cool. It's real easy um, with varying degrees of success. You know, Not everyone was really into the, the coins, but it's what it is. Second part is the uh, 11th to 12th century where people were just gave up on it. And they realized, you know what? This coin money, not really useful, not a big fan of it. We're just going to go back to rice. I like rice. You like rice. Rice is easy. I get it. People understand it. You don't got to explain to people how rice works. You're like oh I've got a bag of rice you've got a bag of rice it is like a an understood value you know exchange when when you're trading with it you're like wow that's a real nice uh, doohickey right there it's a beautiful piece of art you know what that's worth like three bowls of rice boom you can trade it it's easily understood anyway 11th to twelfth century commodity money money that people understand money that people can use it has production value it has um, exchange value and this is the golden the golden age of japanese culture the Heian period Heian period using commodity money they know what's up they're not getting bamboozled like over in china where the mongols eventually come over oh sorry speaking of the mongols third section is the 12th to 17th century and we see an influx of northern uh what song dynasty coins come in because the Jurchin Jurchin? the Jurchin come in and take over and they uh outlaw the use of coin money and they implement paper money and eventually it leads to uh massive hyperinflation and a collapse of their monetary system hmm good thing that you know other countries around the world have learned from that in zimbabwe about hyperinflation man that would be terrible if any hyperinflation is bad and it's real and it destroys economies and countries and Sends regions into crippling poverty. Historically, that's what happens every time. Anyway, the Mongols implemented paper money, and it destroyed economically that region of China that they uh, that they controlled. But all of that coinage that you know was no longer useful for monetary exchanging or paying the taxes to the Mongols. Um, it came over to Japan. I mean, not all of it, but a good portion of it came over to Japan, and it you know flooded the market in the Japanese archipelago. And people said, you know what? I guess we might as well, we can use this to do some, some bartering, some exchange. It has uh, you know, industrial value. You can use it to make stuff. It's got exchange value. It's got a, you know, they're uniformly produced. So uh, it makes it makes a, a decent money. Anyway, moving into the 17th and 19th century, you start getting the influx of the Spanish and Portuguese. You get the Europeans showing up. And what I, I find super fascinating about, like, uh, I guess more so the 16th century, like 16th century Japanese islands, is that towards the end of the Warring States period, you get the three unifiers, right? You get Nobunaga, you get Hideyoshi and Tokugawa. Well, you also get the first contact with the Spanish, but the Spanish aren't coming from Spain, they're coming from New Spain, which is Mexico. And now the, the relationship between... Mexico and Acapulco, 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 the little city on the the west coast of, of Mexico. There's a, a trade route that went from there over to Manila in the Philippines, went back up to Tokyo, or the Japanese islands, uh, what is today Edo, and then that stream shoots right across the Pacific over to California, and now that's exactly where the Spanish boats came from. And in New Mexico, not New Mexico, New Spain, Mexico, they have. They, you know, the Spanish started producing these pieces of eight, what most people would know as pirate coins, right? The Like a piece of eight, it's a big silver Spanish dollar or Spanish coin because it's worth eight reales. Now, these coins were produced from the almost literal mountain of silver and <laughs> the silver mines that they have in Mexico. And these were really, really pure silver, really well minted. Um, and they became a popular money to be used almost globally, right? So the United States liked using them, people in the Americas liked using them, the Caribbean, South America, Europe, people used it throughout the Chinese continent, Korea, the Japanese islands, the Philippines. They were used widely. And even through the opium wars, all the silver that got poured out of China to um, when the British sold opium, a lot of that silver initially came from north america it came from the Sp- the uh the spanish silver mines in mexico anyway i just think that that's like a really fascinating connection between the uh colombian exchange and silver um i guess what silver exchange and circulation throughout asia right and it kind of shows that despite it not being a uh popularly assume that there's a big relationship or a strong relationship between early north american colonization and east asia it really is, and I think that's a, uh, I think that's a cool, a cool fun fact. Anyway, going back to the periods, um, breaking down. So we have these four periods, right? One, two, three, four. First period, domestically produced coins. Then we got a shift over back to commodity money. Then we got a shift over to the Chinese coins. Then in the four, like the nineteenth, seventeenth to nineteenth century, we have the Spanish silver coming over, but. Tokugawa shogunate also starts to make their own coins because they're trying to do like lockdown, we control the economy kind of thing. But throughout all these periods, the primary money that's identified by the court is not the only money that's being used throughout the archipelago, right? Throughout the entire history, there's various monies because the power of the Yamato court isn't strong enough, and the taxes aren't uh, invasive enough to force one currency to be a uniformed currency. I mean, even in, the United, even in North America, when, um, like, the 17th, what, 18th, 18th century, 19th century, um, it's only to like, the late 19th century that they established, like, a legal tender where they outlaw the use of other coins. And that's really to, you know, create a privilege for American mints. And the same thing in Japan, but Japan at that time, you know, in the past seventh century onward, to maybe about I don't know nineteenth uh, century, I'm guessing, they don't have the they don't have the power to kind of outlaw the use of other monies throughout the country or throughout the the islands. And it's not until they have that kind of just you know brute physical coercive power that they're able to outlaw the use of other monies. So despite we're going to talk about certain types of money that are used just know that other monies are also it's still rel- it's a somewhat free market throughout the majority of history because they don't have the ability to enforce uh, you know enforce their restrictions so money it's so always going back to money money is a phenomenon of the market economy it is a market phenomenon now what that means is that in the market there is no function that will prevent alternative forms of money from competing as long as people are willing to use them as mediums of exchange. So before there exists econ no economies, I'm <laughs> sorry. Before there exists like a division of labor and and market economies, there is no money. Money doesn't exist. It's not a useful it doesn't there's no purpose for it. There's no reason for it being and it doesn't it just doesn't exist. It comes into play when there starts to develop a division of labor. When market economies start to develop, it naturally comes about. A form of indirect exchange will occur. How it, the form it takes, varies and is up for competition. But it does. After that occurs, then you have the ability for governments and states to develop. Okay. So in the story of showing the states. The form in which everyday commerce is transacted, you know, the form in which rents are paid, and the forms in which merchants trade with one another are all determined by individual preference. If land rent is required to be paid in a certain commodity because it's dealing with the government, but other merchants prefer the use of another commodity, then that informs us that the preference for medium of exchange is different than, you know, for all these three actors. Now, this is to say that the preferred medium of exchange between merchants is a greater indicator of what is more valued at the time than what is being, you know, uh, mandated to be collected as taxes, right? Because where the merchants have to function and compete on the market, the tax collector does not. He just has to find a way of extracting the most revenue from, you know, a territory, and despite, you know, the way, you know, the form in which taxes are collected, it doesn't tell us about the markets and which commodities are most valued on those markets. It does give us a lot of information, you know, telling us about how the model court in this case sees the best way of extracting wealth from a territory. So we do get information from both of these things, but they're it's different pieces of information that you know kind of start to create a larger, um, a larger picture of the of the situation. Okay, so now we're gonna get into we'll, we'll hit the Japan. We'll do that. Sorry, I know that it's been like a half an hour, and I'm like, eventually we'll start talking about the uh, the economies of the Japanese islands, but um, that time has come. Twenty eight minutes. I hope it's twenty eight minutes. Twenty eight minutes at this point. This is what we're doing. So. Beginning in the 7th century, right, minted coins began to circulate not throughout all the Japanese islands, but some of the Japanese islands. The earliest Japanese coins were known as Wado Kaichin. Now these were made of silver and copper. Ooh, fancy. Uh, you know, the adoption of minting of coins centered around the Yamato court and occurred in a similar time as the adoption of the Taiho Code. You know, the adoption of coin money didn't take on really outside of the Yamato court for reasons that kind of become clear when we consider what money is. The early Yamato court did not have the wealth nor the military power to enforce the use of coins onto people outside of the Yamato region. If the coins were to be adopted as money, they would need to be done so voluntarily. The people outside of the Yamato region evidently did not value the coins or trust them for indirect exchange. Now the material metal you know the metal of coins had a very limited industrial application and it really failed to meet the essential needs for a lot of people who couldn't use the metal to make anything on the other hand a commodity such as rice or silk or lumber or coal made incredibly good money especially rice because you can eat rice you know it it makes good money because it's a universal consumption value its long shelf life, and how divisible it is, rice. Rice is very divisible, right? Um, But we also have to take into consideration the level of technology and the ability to transport people, goods, and services. Now, in areas that we see greater flow of trade tend to be the areas that are more welcoming to adopt a, a more unified monetary system. Now, when there's ample goods and services, people can begin to use a commodity as a store of wealth and a medium of exchange in addition to its industrial uses. Now this phenomenon is also known as the accumulation of capital through production and saving. As the general saving increases in the area it can be invested to increase production. It is this savings that allows for the market economy to develop. Now when the Yamato court attempts to make payments in coins, the people receiving the coins have to trust that either the metal itself is an acceptable payment in that the metal can be consumed or that it can be used as a medium of exchange to get something else. But when one is faced with, you know, when they have a pound of bronze and no one's willing to exchange food for it, bronze kind of loses its function as money. Now, what is often missed is that the phenomenon of money is not, nor has it ever been, a product of centralization or mints or banks. It's just the way it is. Now money as I've stated before, but I'll explain it a little bit, you know, a little bit more. Money is a natural phenomenon that develops as part of a market economy, and like all other goods and services, it has to compete. When one form of money receives a monopoly money status, it is the result of intense regulation and coercion. Now, the most common idea of money that people tend to imagine today is that a fiat money or Fiduciary and credit notes, fiat is not a really a form of money because it lacks any industrial application, and fiduciary credit notes only exist to represent real money, in whatever form it may take. You know, you can have it in rice, you can have it in gold, you can have it in silver, you can have it in I don't know polka dots Are polka dots. Uh, I don't know. Maybe polka dots aren't a good money, but um, what's it called? Although. Fiduciary credit notes do represent real money. It's often the case that centrally issuing mints and banks overextend and begin to engage in something that you may have heard of called fractional reserve banking, and that results in uh, inflationary events. And inflation tends not to be good for economies. Now, when we look into the history of the Japanese islands, we can see how bronze coins were adopted by the Amado court and circulated throughout the Seto Inland Sea. Now, the Seto Inland Sea, for people, for all you folks that don't have a map out there, if you imagine, let's see, the best way to put it, if you put your right hand in front of you with your thumb facing down and your fingers to the left, and your index finger knuckle, that's going to be, and I guess over to that little little muscle between your thumb and your index finger, that's like the Yamato area, there's this like little inland sea, and right under your index fingers is... Uh, what's it called? Shikoku. And to the left of that is uh, Kyushu. And this little inland sea right there between, you know, we got the Nara and Osaka to the right. And all the way to the left, you got uh, the island of Kyushu. And you got a little, got a little trade route. It's easy to put stuff on a boat and send it around and send it to the continent or the peninsula. But, um, But yeah, sorry, that was a little geography update. But anyway, the conditions for the advent of bronze coins and for their discontinuation are most certainly topics of economic investigation in the past. Now, economics offers the most effective and credulity-proof lens with which to explore the past, in that all actions are usually result in uh, some sort of economic uh, activity. And especially when that's the archaeological record, right? People make things, people trade things, exchange things, consume things. And a lot of that falls under the, uh, the category of economic activity. Now, for people of the modern world, the idea of solid money may be a foreign concept. Uh, if we use the U.S. and, for the most part, Japan, right, the Japanese yen is backed by the U.S. dollar, the U.S., for example, and Japan, like I said, has defaulted on all of its debts... And when it abandoned the gold standard, because for a long time, people gave the U.S. their gold and the U.S. in exchange gave them a bunch of dollars and said, don't worry, you can get your gold anytime you want. And then in 1970 something, they were like, oh, just kidding. It's not worth gold anymore. It's worth our trust. Exciting times. So my point is that the U.S. in the 1970s defaulted on all of its debt. And basically got everyone to get on board with, like, we're going to pretend this piece of paper has value. But um, not, the, uh, not the best decision for the world. But uh, anyway, today the U.S. dollar's value is based on the U.S. government's ability to commit violence against other people and also the trust that other governments have made because they lost all of their money to the U.S. in their gold. Yay, the U.S. dollar is the World Reserve, And uh, the year in 2020, when we get that COVID pandemic, we got a lot of um, inflationary uh, activity going on with all those trillions of dollars just being printed. So do with that. No one listens to this for the most part. So if you are listening to this and it's some sort of dystopian future, um, at least knew that I knew what was coming, right? So cheers to that. Anyway. Speaking of money, money is really only good as the combined industrial value and exchange value, right? Because you can include both of them. Like dog coin, dog money is only as useful as people think dog money is useful. It doesn't really have any sort of industrial application. So it doesn't really, it's not useful outside of exchange value. So that's kind of another trust thing. The only thing that dog money has, and I'm using it because dog money is funny, you know? You can think of it as like whatever, Bitcoin or Bitcoin cash or lithium or any other cryptocurrency but dog money the dog money is only as valuable as you know people think it is because you know it just has it only is exchange value you know it's limited in number it's a finite resource that it it can be exchanged and it's secure but it doesn't have industrial value so you know it has uh limitations in its use for as as a money Anyway, my point is that the combined value, let's say copper, right? Because the Japanese coins were made of copper. Now, if you take the combined value of the copper's industrial value and its exchange value, and if that together is less than rice, no one will trade for it. And rice will become the desired money because people would rather have the rice because then rice's industrial consumption value is higher than the combined value of copper's industrial and exchange value. So if you take rice and then add, in addition to that, an exchange value, you have clearly have a superior money than bronze. But once again, all of these are determined by human, in individual human value, which, you know, you can't tell people what their values are. It's just not a thing that happens. But this is one of the potential reasons why coin currency was not adopted throughout the Japanese islands in the 7th century, right? So now... The Yamato court printed a bunch of it minted a bunch of coins. And they say, we are going to use coins. That's what we're going to do. And they tried to sell it to everyone. Not everyone in the islands hopped on board. One of the reasons, possibly, potentially, hypothetically, could have been that the coins were not valued as money outside of the Yamato region. Now, it could be that the Yamato court did not want to spend their coins outside of the Yamato region. Because that would produce a deflationary effect on their currency. And for a lot of the interpretation of monetary history of the Japanese islands, they're going to say, and they do say, that deflationary events tend to discourage the use of coins. Eh, Deflationary events will raise the value of certain coins by limiting their availability. If the availability gets to the point where it's not accessible or a functional currency because there's not enough of it, the market isn't saturated, people will reject it and will use other goods as money. But of course, it's not just a one-size-fits-all. You don't have to completely abandon coins because you only have one coin and it's worth, I don't know, 10 bushels of rice. You can use change where you can combine different combinations of currency only thing that would be stopping you from doing that is a government right Nothing stopping the free market from saying well I only have this one gold coin that's worth thousand dollars and I want to buy this thing that's worth 1200 not giving you two gold coins I'm giving you a gold coin and something else that's worth less like a silver coin to kind of make up and meet that or you know I'm giving you two bronze coins and uh, I don't know six handfuls of rice to meet you know to, to break that down. Which is why divisibility is important for money. Anyway, scenario two is that coins that were minted in the Yamato region are made from imported copper. A lot of it was. Um, various copper, copper alloys. And the copper alloys held industrial value and being able to be molded into tools, weapons, decorations. Now, there exists a possibility that the people in the Yamato region valued the copper alloys more than the goods and services from the people outside of the region. So they wouldn't spend their money outside of the region because the money that they have, not the money, but the copper alloy, the physical material, its industrial value is greater than the industrial and exchange value of the goods and services from outside of the region. So if you have a, I don't know, let's say you have an Amish guy come over. He's like, yo, I got these clams. I got these cockles. I got these oysters. I'm ready to trade. Let's do it. And um, the person in the amount of court's like, yeah, but those oysters are not really worth that to me. And then they'll find something else to trade, right? To exchange for the the goods and services that are coming into it. So I feel like I can't really stress enough how important industrial value is when determining you know various commodities and, and forms that money takes throughout the ages because it's important. Now, on the flip side of that, on the other side of that coin, is that it, you know the Amato peoples, the people of the Amato court, the people of the Seto inland sea region, could have said our coins are worth more than your oysters. Oysters will say. On the other hand, the people who came in, the Ameshi, show up with their oysters and they're like, "Hey man, I got these awesome oysters. Real delicious, real great, amazing oysters. Best oysters you ever had in your life." And the guy from the Yamato region pulls out some coins. The Ameshi guy's like, uh, I don't really want that those coins. I don't know what I'm going to do with those coins. I, I give you these delicious oysters and you bring me coins? Right? I mean, he does not think he knows this, but he's like, have you seen writing? What do you think we're using for coin? We're using shell. Boom, I got a shell right here. It's pretty. It's beautiful. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a pearl in it. huh? You can eat it. You can shelf it. It's great. Um maybe they just didn't want the coins. Possibility. Not saying I know. Just saying the uh it exists. It exists as a as an option. Possibility in the realm of of the realm of possibilities. Now, here we also get a glimpse into the network aspect of trade and commerce. So if one has a medium of exchange, but the goods and services that they wish to buy aren't being circulated in a manner that allows them to acquire those things. The coin loses its usefulness as money because it can no longer act as money. So, whatever whatever commodity is being used as money, if there's circulation of trade isn't happening, it starts to lose its exchange value because there's nothing to exchange for it, right? So you need this circulation of trade and commerce to exist so that exchange value exists. And the more the you know, the greater variety of goods and services that you can buy with those coins or with those monies, the greater exchange value becomes. I mean, also there's, you know, the subjective value of trading and bartering, but in addition, there is there is a link to availability of goods and services and exchange value rates, rates like the level of exchange values. And as the availability of, of goods and services fluctuates, there's also a shift in the preference for commodity or for the money of choice. Now, market economies overall exist in constant fluctuation, and that the idea of a stationary or static system of value is one that rejects the realities of the world and of human nature. So to have an arbitrary value assigned to a coin is something that is usually the product of a state or government because they're trying to dictate and centralize commerce on the market there's a constant fluctuation of value it doesn't have to be crazy but it, it constantly fluxes and um and that's something you have to take into consideration oh i, I talked about this the other one uh, possible coins might not be enough coins to um be useful as money you know sometimes there just isn't enough copper alloy to be able to mint enough coins to saturate a market but um the cost of minting the coins needs to be taken into account as well for the production of the coins. Right now, if the cost of minting outstrips the commercial value plus the exchange value of the coins as money, it's very unlikely for this to continuously like, to be continued like, a continued activity. Right now, this is likely a contributing factor in that the tremendous increase in Chinese coins in the late 12th century encouraged the use of them as a medium of exchange. Because you didn't have to make them, You get all these cool coins pouring into the country, basically not for free, but you don't have to make. You have the material, you don't have to make the coin, right? The coin's already made. It's already boom stamped. It's already like uniformed. It's a you know currency that's just being imported, and that saves the Japanese islands a lot of a lot of time, a lot of money, for it. yeah. See what I said? They did there, but um, the amount of court doesn't have to go ahead and design and print their own coins and imitate the Chinese ones because. They boom. They just they take it. They just buy it for the uh, the what's it called industrial content, like the commodity value of it, and they can bring it over and start using it. And the same thing, once they start exchanging it and accepting it as currency, you can get other people running over to the continent, seeing if you can get cheap coins because the Mongols have decided that, to, you know, the Mongols or the Jurchin. and I think that's an interesting distinction that we should we should keep in mind, because. Uh, Jurchin, I think, are the people. I always mess this one up. Anyway, northern, uh, north, eastern Asiatic folk. Anyway, back to the Japanese islands. So, despite that the coins, that the the bronze coins, were used in the Yamato Core region, but primarily the Seto Island Sea, the use of it continued from the seventh to the tenth century, even though that the outskirts of the of the region did not. Now. The implementation of coin money is likely to have come from the continent and families such as the Soga and those who were proponents of Buddhism and Chinese styles of government. Now, there also existed trade networks between the Japanese archipelago and the continent, which may have encouraged the use of bronze coins as a medium of exchange. Other clans and factions along among the Yamato court may not have taken kindly to the continuous Sinification of Wa or the Japanese Islands, or Nippon, however you want to call it. Now, the introduction of coin money may be related to the developments that took place during the Asuka period between the Soga clan and the Mononobe clans and uh, related to Prince Shotoku's policies. Prince Shotoku. Of course you know about Prince Shotoku. He's Prince Shotoku. Try not to curse. Calm down. Prince Shotoku, I think I did an episode... I don't even think I did an episode on him. I have to. Go look back. I think I, I definitely did. He's um pseudo-mythical character. Pseudo-Prince region who ruled over Japan. Maybe he was real. Maybe he wasn't. You know, he reminds me of... He's kind of like Ragnar Lothbrok um, from Scandinavia. Or like King Arthur. Where he's like, is he real? Is he not real? The things that he did. I mean, if you look into the Buddhist lore about him... He's like the father of Japanese Buddhism. He's a Boda Vista. He's a reincarnation of one of, uh, what's her face? Princess. She was uh, the first female I think She's like the second Boda Vista that I'm, I feel like I'm butchering that word now. Anyway, um, miracles. Uh, he wrote a constitution for Japan. Uh, he implemented the 12 cap system. He crushed the Mononobe clan through prayer and not, you know, brutal violence. Okay, I guess. Um, And uh, lots of good stuff. And he's on some money today. Moving on. Prince Shotoku. Interesting figure. But out of the uh, 7th to 10th century, moving into the Heian period. Oh, yeah. Because we're shifting back to commodity money. Some scholars may believe that there is a particularity in the market rejecting only coin money and using uh, commodity money, and the you know the growth of wealth and prosperity. But that's not that doesn't really doesn't make sense. So for the end of the tenth to twelfth century, the state did not circulate or conduct its business in coin because people decided you know what's better than making people use coins, being wealthy and prosperous. Oh no. How could anyone think that? Yes, it's much better to be prosperous and wealthy than it is to force coins down people's throats. But uh, anyway, some external pressures. Remember how I mentioned the Mongols like six times already today? Well, in the 12th 1120s the Northern Song Dynasty collapses and their coinage begins to flow into the markets of the Japanese islands. The coins begin to be adopted again as a form of money and continued until the contact with Europeans and North Americans when they bring over all that beautiful, sexy Mexican silver. Um, And the Tokugawa tries to control the economy and government and tries to make sure everyone uh, stays Japanese, even though, what does that even mean at that point in time? What does that even mean? No one knows. No one knows what being really Japanese means. Even the Japanese don't know what that means. And if they say that, they know they're lying to you. Anyway, 1120s. 12th century, I guess, What? Well, yeah, 12th century, coins start getting adopted again, and um, there's this uh, a shift between the state collecting taxes and coins once again and changing the way in which people conduct their business because there's an ebb and flow of the market versus taxation, and it's always the state trying to administer and collect revenue while the producers strive to avoid paying taxes as best they can. So the government's always looking for ways to better extract resources, and the, gov- the, the producers are always looking for ways to hide their resources so they won't be extracted and preserve as much of their wealth away from taxation as possible. And it happened in the 12th century, and it happens today. It's just a, I don't want to say an economic law, but it's a strong economic tendency, is that people who produce things don't want those things stolen from them, and if your goal is to produce wealth and and profit, you don't want that stolen from you, and so you're going to avoid paying taxes because taxation is theft. There you go. I said it. Didn't think I was going to say it this episode, but you made me say it. Well, not you. You know, you're probably nice people, but I had to say it because. You know government's always trying to steal your money so my point is that when taxes are imposed in a certain commodity that affects the market value of those commodities so now rice is used to pay the position of rice in the market changes in relation to the price of rice to other products and this is altered because of the additional usage for rice now when there's a shift in the form of payments that is required to pay taxes There's a ripple effect throughout the economy to adjust for these new conditions. And it's not something new. It's not like a still static water of the economy. And then the shift happens like by the change in how taxes are collected or a change in tax rates. And it creates like this wave on a still pond. No, it's more like the ocean. There's ebbs and flows in in the market economy. And the form of taxation is, I think, more like a boat coming through. Now, this is true for every other aspect of the economy and the market, and isn't just unique to the state in taxation, and the, the ripples. But the ripples caused by taxation reduce the overall production of a region due to the inability for producers to properly invest or allocate their wealth and the additional means used to avoid and evade the collection of taxes in the first place. Whew! So... Producers producing their things. They're going to make some things. They're going to sell it to some people. They're going to have a nice healthy profit. When part of that profit is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, stolen from them, they can no longer use it to reinvest it in production. They can no longer save it for increasing their ability to produce. So that impoverishes the area just a little bit. And then in addition to that cost, there's an additional cost that producers will go through where they invest money and time and resources to avoid paying those taxes. So now you have a reduction in overall production capability because you're trying to avoid the taxation, and then the taxation you're unable to avoid also decreases production. So there's two forms in which taxation on production reduces the overall productive wealth-generating capability of a region. Bam! Okay, so remember how I said in the uh, 12th century, the Northern Song was invaded, the Jurchens, the Mongols, they took over, they made paper money, inflation, economic collapse. Well, in the Japanese islands, there was still a freer market for monies to compete with and for the market to check against hyperinflation and the implementation of fiat money. So throughout time, throughout time, the uh, the kinds of coins that were used changed and the imported coins were supplemented in the market by domestically produced coinage as well. Now the key point to understand here is that the mint which created the coins is not as significant as the content and market value of the coins themselves. Now whether this coin was minted by the model court or non-state actor, the coin is still usable for trade. Now, this may have been brought into question by the Amado court, which sought to control the minting and distribution of coinage to various degrees throughout time, but for the most part, you know, the identification of a, a quote-unquote counterfeit coin is identical in the market. It does this, it has the same economic uh, function that non-counterfeit coins are made, you know, whether it's made or approved by the Yamato court, by the defunct Song dynasty, northern Song dynasty, by the uh, economically illiterate Mongol empire, um, or by, you know, Mr. Taro down the street. He's just going to pump out some coins because he's got a lot of bronze and he's got a thing that makes coins. So they're all the same. Unless these coins have a, a fiduciary aspect, right? an aspect where they represent something. So in addition to being coins, to being having that metal, they represent something, like a promise or a credit. So now coins that are used as these fiduciary currency that represent a held commodity which can be you know which is produced upon request is um, is one of the exceptions. Like that is a that is a proper counterfeit then. Right? So if you know Mr. Taro down the street has a a rice bank where he has all this rice and he issues these coins which upon request will produce, I don't know, uh, one pound of rice, right? Counterfeiting those is stealing from Taro and all of his, you know, investors. That's a a proper counterfeit coin because if you're trying to counterfeit fiduciary notes or fiduciary credits, you're going to, you know, that that would be considered proper... uh, Proper counterfeiting there, but I don't I don't like it when people refer to just as general coinage uh, production as counterfeiting, because for the most part it's not, unless it's you know once again trying to create a a fake fiduciary item. Anywho, the last phase I guess not the last second to the last phase in the money of the Japanese islands came about in the 17th century. So now. We talked about Spanish, silver, Mexico, exciting times, Columbus Exchange. Now, the economy of the Japanese islands had developed and changed tremendously throughout the 8th to 16th century. I mean, it, it had. <laughs> you know, the amount of wealth and prosperity that the island enjoyed changed. But we see a general positive trajectory through the accumulation of capital and the means of production, the general increase and uh, sophistication of the means of production throughout the islands. Now, this was interrupted by periods of war and poor government interference, which hampered production and led to net losses of capital. So by and by, and by by and by, I mean, uh, base, this is close to an economic law. War decreases production. War is, creates net losses throughout a region. If we look at the Japanese islands, and I know 100% I talked about this before when we talked about the post-war period, the amount of production that the Japanese islands were pumping out during World War II, and I guess like the the late 30s and the 40s, was insane. Like the amount of, of things that they were just producing to throw in the garbage, and by the garbage I mean to just throw out in war, the war destroyed so, so much. The fact that if, if the what's it called? If the central constraints on production during that period were left to the free market, that's one of the reasons why Japan became such a wealthy, wealthy nation. I know people are gonna say the U.S. interfered and it had a puppet state and it used it, blah 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 blah. But just in domestic production of the Japanese islands during the war period and after the war period, the after the war period when all of the things that were produced in the island stopped being destroyed immediately, right? Because during the war, it gets built, gets sent out to the ocean, gets destroyed. Wow, I wonder why capital isn't being accumulated. After the war, the capital can be accumulated, savings can take place, and wealth and prosperity can grow. Just how it works. I mean, I'm not. I'm not making it up. Anywho... The money that the Japanese islands used remained fairly similar, you know, after the contact with uh, the European nations because they started to imitate um, various European uh, models of currency, primarily the U.S. dollar, which – okay, fun fact. So here we go down a little bit of a dollar rabbit hole. So the yen, at least the the modern yen, as it was was initially established, is done – in imitation of the dollar, now the dollar actually comes from the word th- Thaler, Thaler, thraller, Thaler, th- yeah, Thaler, it's a German uh, currency. So the Thaler is named after the valley. It's a, it's like a like a, a minting valley, which is the word Thal. Branching this over, Neanderthal is the valley, Neander Valley, where the uh, first Neanderthal remains were found. So. We have the yen, and I've linked it directly to Neanderthals. That's like six degrees to yen? Six degrees to Neanderthals? I don't know. But there's a connection there, and I thought that was cool, and I wanted to share that with you because, um, I don't know, because it's fun. That's a that's a fun fact. But anyway, um, up until the 1970s, the yen was backed by, uh, did it have a gold? Shit, I don't know. Give me one second. I'll check it. Okay, uh, da, 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 da. new currency act of 1871, the new yen, there we go, the yen in 1871 was defined as 1.5 grams of gold, or 0. 0.048 troy ounces of gold, okay, there we go, or 24.6 grams of silver, or 0. 0.780 troy ounces of silver as the new decimal currency, yada, 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 okay. So, um, yen wilson devour, stable Japanese economy, exchange rate was fixed at 300. Okay, they fixed it and they fucked it up, and the system was abandoned in 1971. I wonder why, because the yen became undervalued. Um, 71, and we just going to make a policy, dirty float regime. Yeah, so they're just manipulating money post the 1970s. I guess, I guess, technically, even making the tying the yen to a definite amount of gold and silver. Is slightly problematic because now you're tying the value of silver and gold together. Um, and if you're a smart investor, you can uh, take advantage of that. Trade gold and silver other places, come back, exchange it, and you know you can tweak something that makes some make some money there. But um, 1882, Bank of Japan was founded and was given a monopoly on controlling money supply in Japan. All right, so there you go. Money was uh, doomed since 1882 in the Japanese islands. And, um, we see a lot of, a lot of growth, a lot of economic growth up until late eighties, some bubbles pop, there's a lost generation. And for the most part, it kind of like has been sluggishly getting out of that since then, but not really. I mean, go to some like Inaka regions and, you know, the, uh, economic vigor isn't there anymore. I mean, the same thing with the U S there's not, there's not a lot of economic, uh, hopefulness unless, you know you're in bed with the government but um anyway that was my spiel um and i think that's pretty much it for today we talked about a lot of monetary stuff we talked about some economics i tried to <laughs> i tried to tie as much japanese history in there as possible and and you know initially it started like the whole episode i was going to do was going to be about the different ways that currency changed throughout the the show in the you know um I was going to talk about how like the different forms of rent, right? Because a lot of people, at least I've read some articles and a couple articles were saying how they found it weird that rents were paid different than normal commercial exchange or that they referred to those as different types of commercial transactions. And I guess they kind of are, but there's nothing fundamentally like the only reason that they are is because. Like a commercial transaction between merchants is consensual and paying taxes is not. So aside from that, you know, the use of money on one is consensual and it's like the free market decision and they compete. On the other hand, it's just kind of dictated and you know it's it it's enacted as far as um, as far as the collector can enforce violence upon the person, you know, or coercion in some some manner to get them to, to comply. But anyway, oh yeah, I also criticized the archaeologists. But um anyway, that's things things I do sometimes. Uh, da, 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 da. that's pretty much it for today. I think uh, I've taken up enough of your time. If you've reached this far in the uh, in the podcast, I, you know, thanks thanks good for you. I like it. Send me an email, let me know. Um, I don't know. And uh, that's pretty much it. This has been Incredible Discourse. Next time, you know... Oh, I brought... Sorry, before we, before we, before we wrap up, I did bring up Buddhism before because Buddhism plays such a, a strong role in the Japanese islands. I'm going to be getting into that. Um, I did an episode before about Buddhism and, and postmodernism. I feel like both of them get a little hate. But anyway, Buddhism, it's fun. It's got a long economic trajectory and, and uh, sorry, a long economic history of the Japanese islands. Whew, but it's late. And, uh that's it thanks for listening if you have any comments questions or concerns hit me up at incredible discourse at gmail.com our website's up incredible discourse and uh oh I'm also on uh the the twitter at incredis incredis I guess that's it that's all that's the only part um I got some things I'm working on trying to get uh, you know do episodes when I have time it's tough I don't get a lot of sleep but uh you know come come say hi to you people whenever I get the chance and uh, that's pretty much it I'm out